Today, we are starting what we as a church are calling the Year of Biblical Literacy. And, um, and it started a, a, few, a couple days ago with um, January 1 reading of Genesis. And you probably are following along and reading that um, at home. So it, it contains all these different layers. If you go to realitysf.com slash Bible, all that's there. All our sermons will be populated there. All our um, uh, lectures will be there as well. So we encourage you to go there um, and read along. Uh, the whole premise of this year is to learn the Bible by actually reading the Bible um, and not just hearing about it, though you will hear a lot about it as well. So we are starting that today. So um, if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 28. The, the scriptures will not be on the screen. You will have to look in a Bible to, try, to, to like, no, it's actually there. Like he's not just reading things randomly. It's there. Matthew chapter 28 and John chapter 5. Um, John 5, 39, Matthew 28, 16. Okay, whenever we do a big series or start a big series, I like to start with some prefatory comments, maybe even a disclaimer or two. So let me start with some of those. So um, these are just prefatory. This is not the sermon. This is just some comments I want to make. The best way to get the most out of this year um, at, in the year of, biblical, year of biblical literacy is to dive in. Do what we have set up for our church this year. Do the whole year, the whole thing. Um, it will be a commitment. It will be a huge commitment. It'll probably take something like 20 minutes a day and then sermons and then lectures and all this stuff. It'll take a long time. But commitment is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this book right here is the best-selling book of all time year and year over year. This book is banned in places all over the world and smuggled into places at the peril of those who have the Bible. So why wouldn't you at least read it for yourself to see what all the hype is about? So if you are not a follower of Jesus, go with us through this year. Read it with us. At the end, you might at the end just walk away, and, but at least give it a chance. There are four layers that we're going to be going through this next year. Uh, the first one is you reading the Bible for yourself. And we, um, as we've been saying, we've, we've partnered with the Bible Project to do some videos. Um, Bible Project has placed some videos on their website to help us see the overview of the book before we read the book. Um, also, be a regular part of community groups. A lot of you, most of you are signed up for a community group, so now be a regular part of that group. Don't look, don't go to group though, listen. Do not go to group to debate people. Do not go to community group to show off all of your Bible knowledge. People won't like you if you do that. <laughs> Go to humbly discuss and learn how to obey the scriptures together. And keep this in mind, to quote the Bible, start with a plank in your own eye before you take the splinter out of somebody else's eye. Jesus said that. You'll get there eventually. Also, listen and engage with the sermons. If you're traveling, try to get the podcast. Also, be part of the lectures um, and ask good questions from the lectures. The people that we have coming to lecture are very smart people with PhDs, and so they can handle your questions. I cannot, but they can. That's why we're bringing them in. Um, the first lecture is on January 18th, the making of the Bible PhD in, 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 um, in, uh, in Hebrew. Uh, Tim Mackey will be here, and he's going to be talking about the canonization of the Bible. This is so important to understand how we got our Bible. He's lecturing on the making of the Bible. So most of us think, well, this is just a human book compiled together by people wrestling for power in the first century. Um, and he'll talk about that. It's not true, but spoiler alert, sorry. Um, 
Lastly, well, actually not lastly, I have a few more. Um, the Bible is a huge subject with all these sub-subjects attached to it, so there's so much to say that I will not say today in this small little intro. Um, I won't even say it in the next three weeks in this series on authority and the Bible. I'm hoping that we have a whole year to say these things about the Bible, but even then, after a year, we might not have said enough. So if today I, I, I don't say something that you think I should have said, hang on. Either I'll get to it or what you think I should have said is not really a thing and you probably shouldn't think it anymore. So one of those two things are going to happen. That was kind of a joke. Um, Almost lastly, there are some of you that are very new to the faith, uh, and you're very skeptical when it comes to, um, to the Bible. You're still skeptical. I mean, you might start to have faith in Jesus, but, and you're, you might be cool with Jesus, but the Bible to you as a whole has a lot of problems, and I understand that. Um, my hope is that this is a place, and that this is a year where we can have questions about the Bible, and some trite answer is not necessary but we try to discover the answers as we actually read through the Bible together. One of the best um, answers to your questions this year, and we've tried to teach the community group leaders to say this as well, is let's keep reading. Let's keep reading. You might get to the middle of Judges and say, this book is horrible. Keep reading. Keep reading. Um, we're going to find that as we keep reading, the story unfolds. One of my mentors has said, churches need an atmosphere where questions and queries about the truthfulness of, um, are encouraged and to take the questions of the Bible seriously, believing that Christianity thrives under honest investigation. And we believe that, that Christianity thrives under honest investigation. The last thing I'll say is that I and our other leaders and pastors will be up front and we'll love to dialogue if you have a question at the end of today. We have all been studying this together, and we find it best to dialogue about questions when it comes to the scripture. Um, if you email me, uh, chances are I will not email you back because I don't like typing, for one, and I'm horrible at it. So you'll, answer, you'll ask one sentence, and I'm supposed to give you like a giant book, and I, it won't happen. Um, also, Facebook is the worst place on the planet to debate the Bible. Okay, that's all I have to say. <laughs> not Facebook like headquarters, like online, you know what I'm saying. Anyway. If you work there, you're like, wait, what? Um, and my only disclaimer today, before we get started, I told you it was a lot. I'll ask some questions around the Bible today that I will not answer. So if this unsettles you, um, let it unsettle you and keep reading and keep opening your heart and your mind to Jesus through the scriptures as we journey together. So today, I want to turn to our text, John 5 and Matthew 28. And I want to talk about the problem, the problem with the Bible, the problem with the Bible. Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 5, start there. John 5, verse 39 and 40, Jesus speaking, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Matthew 28. Jesus again speaking, verse 16. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Let's pray. God, I um, stand before this church uh, with the Bible open and feel like this. I'm just like really out of my depth. I pray that you would lead us by your spirit, um, that you would show us Jesus. Holy Spirit, show us Jesus. Keep us from being just a bunch of know-it-alls this year. Make us humble people that find the life of Jesus inside the scriptures. And may the words of my mouth and the testimony, Lord, and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, God, as I testify of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. First, I guess I'll say this. This is the cornerstone of kind of what we've been talking about leading up to today. I believe that we are becoming illiterate when it comes to the Bible. I think we love podcasts and sermons and some devotional thoughts about the Bible, which is all fine in context, but reading the Bible and knowing its story and how this collection of 66 different writings fits together and how to approach the Bible is becoming a lost art. And why is biblical literacy so low? Why is it so low? Why is biblical literacy all across even our country so low today? Well, I think some of it has to do with the fact that we don't read anymore. We don't read that much anymore. We don't read books anyways. Um, we read threads and blogs and posts, and, but many of us have, it, have a hard time getting lost in a book, getting lost in a story, unless like J.J. Abrams has some part of it or something like that. <laughs> I read an article in our newspaper, our physical, actual newspaper, um, but it did, this article did appear on medium.com first, but it was in the newspaper where I read it. And this, this guy was reflecting on how uh, why we don't read anymore. And it was, a, it was an essay as he was reflecting on why he only read four books this last year. And he says he only read four books this last year because he's finding it harder and harder to concentrate on words because they turn into sentences and paragraphs and then chapters. And he says this, most nights last year, I got to bed with a book and started reading one word after the next, a sentence two sentences, maybe three, and then I needed a little something else, something to tide me over, something to scratch that little itch at the back of my mind, just a quick look at email on my iPhone, to write and erase a response to a funny tweet from William Gibson, and to follow a link to a really, find and follow a, a link to a really good article in the New Yorker, then email again just to be sure. Then I'd read another sentence. That's four sentences. It takes a long time to read a book at four sentences per day, and it's exhausting. I was usually asleep halfway through sentence number five. A lot of us know how this feels, being distracted all the time and addicted to, distract, addicted to distraction. This is kind of where the essay ends up. He, he says, I'm addicted to digital distraction and I want to change. There's a reason why it was put at the end of last year or just a couple days ago, because he says, my New Year's resolution is I want to start reading books again. And why books? He says this, quotes on the screen. Books, in a way that are different than visual art, music, the radio, or even love, force us to walk in a, through another's thoughts, one word at a time. Over hours and days, we share our minds for that time with the writers. There is slowness, a forced reflection required by the medium that is unique. Books recreate someone else's thoughts inside our own minds, and maybe it is this one-to-one -one mapping of someone else's words 
on their own, without external stimuli, that give books their power. Books force us to let someone else's thoughts inhabit our minds completely. If this is true, I can't think of a better book or a collection of books for a follower of Jesus to read than the Bible. To allow the thoughts of God mediated by the authors he moved to write to inhabit our minds completely, to let this do its work daily on us, word by word, until the scriptures shape our imaginations as followers of God, to allow the Bible to inhabit our minds completely. Now, that all sounds probably really good, but there are a lot of hurdles to overcome. See, biblical literacy is also low in large part due to our own consumerism. As consumers, we believe the shortest route to improvement is through new products. And we go, I will improve by buying something. So we buy Bibles, we just don't read Bibles. We all maybe have bought a Bible. We sold out of those Bibles that we had every single week. People would walk up and people would walk away with stacks of them. Why do you need five Bibles? I have no idea. But people walked away with stacks of them and they were sold out every single week. We buy them, but will we read them? Like I said earlier, the Bible is the best-selling book year over year. Something like 25 million Bibles are sold every year. But the Bible remains the best-selling book that's never read. I would guess that many of you in here, especially if you're under the age of 30, have not read the Bible cover to cover. And I say under 30 because there was way more of an emphasis on Bible reading in older generations. And, and even older generations loved the Bible. Uh, many of your parents probably have a Bible they've had for 40 years, and they've read through it like 38 times and have color-coded highlights and tabs everywhere. But for most of us, that's, that, that's not true. And I understand why. Um, we have a lot of questions, especially modern questions that surround the Bible, questions that can even cause us to take issue with the Bible. I mean, this book is pretty bloody. There are some people who can read the book of Joshua, if you've ever read that book. And you could read the book of Joshua, and go like, God, look at what happens when you trust in God. God scatters your enemies and God brings you the victory. And you've probably read Joshua and maybe you've read Joshua and thought that. You're like, look at how God comes through to Joshua and how he destroys their enemies and brings them victory and brings them into the land of promise. But some of us will read the book of Joshua and think, how is this not God commanded genocide and ethnic cleansing? How is it that God commands the death of women and children? How is that in the sacred Bible? Not to mention the rape and the murder and the incest and the deceit that's found in the people of God in the, in the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament. There's this one story. You're going to come upon it soon in Genesis. I won't tell you what chapter. I just want it to hit you like it's supposed to. There's this one story of a, a woman who dresses up like a prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law because... The father-in-law promised her a husband because her husband had died, but he hasn't provided a husband yet, and she really wants to have kids. So she dresses up like a prostitute, and him, thinking that she was a prostitute, sleeps with her, and then she becomes pregnant, and then he hears, hey, you know your daughter-in-law is pregnant? And he's like, what? That's sin. Kill her by burning her. And then she reveals, oh, guess what? Guess whose baby I'm pregnant with? Yours. And then he goes, ah, you got me. Not joking. He's like, you're more righteous than I am. Don't kill her. I'm not going to sleep with her anymore. And then next chapter, and his name is Judah. You, you're probably like, wait, I think I know that name. Like Jesus from the line of the tribe of Judah. Yeah, same guy. That guy. 
I, I honestly, every single time I read this story, I'm thinking, people shouldn't read the Old Testament. <laughs> this thing is crazy. And then there's this whole thing around what does the Bible even mean? We just finished our Advent series, and during our series, we had uh, Ruthie Kim and Julie Barrios teach, both from our church, both involved in important leadership and pastoral care in our church, and they did this just an incredible job teaching. And soon after they taught, um, we received a couple of comments and emails, and they were all very well-intentioned, very, very honest and kind questions that basically said, why did you have a woman teach? That says in 1 Timothy that a woman should not be allowed to teach. It actually does say that. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.12. Paul, I do not permit a woman to teach or, ha- or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. And that's very hard to read, I admit. It's very hard to read in public. It's, it's a hard text. But the question is, what do you take that to mean? Does that mean do not teach on a Sunday during a sermon? And that's typically what we take that to mean. But it doesn't say that. It says to teach, and there's no qualifier. It says just to teach. So the question is this. Have you ever learned anything or been taught taught anything by a woman? And it doesn't say that women are only allowed to teach other women. It says women can't teach, period. But no one takes it to mean that. So what do you take it to mean? And who is it up to to decide what that means? Or take another example. Paul commands multiple times in his letters to greet one another with a holy kiss. And we all say, well, that's not, that's not what it means. We don't kiss each other. It means greet each other with a, like a holy side hug is what it means. <laughs> that's what we're supposed to do. I'm like, well, why do you interpret it that way? And you would say, well, it's culturally conditioned where the kiss doesn't mean the same thing anymore. Not, at least not here. Okay, what about, what about murder? Well, you shall not murder. Well, that's self-evident. Yes, of course. But most Christians would say you shall not murder unless it's killing in self-defense or defending something you love. And therefore, it's no longer murder, it's just killing. But then I would say something like, well, Jesus said to turn the other cheek. And then you would probably say something like, well, Jesus said to buy a sword. And then I would say, well, then Jesus also said later on that to put away the sword because that's not how the kingdom of God is to come into the world. But then you would say, oh, but doesn't Jesus at the end of the Bible, isn't he sitting on a white horse and wearing a robe dipped in blood and carrying a sword? And then I would say, well, the blood is his own blood and the sword is not in his hand, it's in his mouth and it's all symbolic. And then you would say, why are you allowed to say it's symbolic? And how do you know when the Bible is being symbolic? And how do you know when a passage is culturally conditioned? And how do you know when to obey something in the Bible? And then I would say, this is the problem with the Bible. (laughs) And this is the problem with the Bible. The Bible is hard. I I don't want to say this because I don't think people say this enough. The Bible is a hard book to understand a lot of the time. And we should just admit that. This is a very hard book to understand. And it doesn't take a PhD, but it does take skill and intelligence to interpret the Bible wisely. The Bible has been used for the greatest good and some of the greatest evil our world has ever seen. Mark Twain once said that that in the Bible you could find both the poison and the cure. The Bible historically is poison that has started wars, allowed for sexism, slavery, genocide of like the Native American people, for example. It's a poison that drove a lot of that, but it's also 
the cure. It's a cure for wars, people giving their lives in nonviolence to war-torn countries. The empowering of women and minorities, it's been the motivation to end slavery. So, why do we keep reading the Bible? And why not just move on from it? Why not just keep Jesus, choose some encouraging words for the pastor to speak on every Sunday morning, sing some good songs, and be done with this big, old, intimidating book? And who wraps books in leather nowadays anyways? Like, it's intimidating, it's wrapped in leather, it's like the pages are thin, it's just a weird book. Why do we read it? And why are we going as our whole church reading the whole book this year, why? Here's why. The reason why We do not move on from the Bible. We keep reading the Bible is because we are followers of Jesus. Jesus was obsessed with the Bible. Jesus more than likely had the Bible, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, memorized. He would quote from it. He would teach from it. He would argue about how best to interpret it and therefore to live into the scriptures. He would pray the Bible. His whole way of living and seeing the world was shaped by the Bible. And, as it says on the screen, because we are followers of Jesus, it is our aim and goal to have the same kind of relationship with the Bible that Jesus had. Jesus loved the scriptures. Turn to Matthew chapter 4 with me. Matthew 4. I want to show you how Jesus relates to the Bible and how he sees his whole life through the scriptures. Matthew 4, this is a very popular account of Jesus' temptation, the wilderness temptation. And after the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, he was baptized. He began his ministry around the age of 30. It says that the Spirit of God led him to the wilderness where he fasted and he prayed. And this is where he meets the tempter. This is where he meets the Satan or the devil. The great thing about this story is that we have met the tempter before in the Bible. Um, This is the wonderful thing about the Bible. It is seriously a story that's knit together from start to finish. Though it gets crazy in the middle, it gets crazy even at the end, it is a single story. We meet the tempter in Genesis chapter 3, and he was depicted as a snake, and he was tempting Adam and Eve. And in that origin story in Genesis chapter 3, the first thing the snake did was to question the authority of God's word. So the snake goes to Adam and Eve and says, did God really say? Did God really say that? It's interesting because to fight temptation now, when Jesus meets the serpent again, or, the, or when, when the serpent is introduced again, tempting like he was in Genesis 3, the way that Jesus fights temptation is he, he only quotes God's word. He only says, it is written. And this is almost like a slap in the face in Genesis chapter 3, where Satan first says, or the snake first says, did God really say? And then Jesus says, it is written, it is written, it is written. But in Genesis 3, this is how the fall of humanity started, with all those, with those fateful words, did God really say? So Jesus meets this, the same tempter, the devil, knowing that Jesus was hungry. He was fasting, and it says that he was hungry. And then the Satan comes to him and says this. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And then Jesus answered, it is written. So Jesus then uses the scriptures. Jesus was saturated. His mind was saturated with the Bible. 
He says this, he quotes Deuteronomy, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes the scriptures to the tempter. So now what happens is, you know, two can play at that game. So just Satan tries the same thing. Then the devil took him to a, hot, to a holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. Same thing. Jesus like, it's written. I'm not going to do that. And he was like, oh, you want to play that game? Okay. It is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan is quoting Psalm 91. Now, Jesus knows the scriptures and he knows Psalm 91. And this is, this is interesting. He knows it doesn't mean that. This is, this is key because what Jesus is doing here is like, yes, you can quote the scriptures to me, but that doesn't mean it means that. It doesn't mean that. And this has huge implications on who Jesus is as an interpreter of scripture, as a teacher, a rabbi of the scriptures, and how we often quote scriptures, sometimes to our own peril. So Jesus says back to him, it is also written. So he quotes another scripture back to him. He doesn't say, no, no, that's not what the scripture means. So it is also written, do not put your Lord, the Lord your God, to the test. So what Jesus does here, he uses a passage from Deuteronomy 6. As if to say, there is a tone that Deuteronomy 6 hits in Scripture that allows you to see Psalm 91 in a certain way, and you're not taking Psalm 91 at what it's supposed to mean, because you have this Scripture right here that says you can't put the Lord your God to your test. This is very interesting. Lastly, the devil tries to get Jesus to worship him, which is almost comical. At the last one, he's like, okay, will you just worship me? Like, it just gets, gets to the point. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. I, I, don't, it's, I just think that's funny. It's like, just jumps to the end. It's like, I just want you to worship me. We just worship me. And, and Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written. There it is again. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So three times Jesus is tempted. Three times he uses the authority of scripture to fight. Now, keep in mind that Jesus had the resources of heaven available to him. So when he's up against the tempter, when he's up against the Satan, or the snake, the serpent, the devil, when he's up against him, he had the resources of heaven to fight with him later on in the book of Matthew in chapter 26. When he's just about to go to the cross and he's arrested, Peter pulls out a sword and Jesus tells him to put away the sword. And Jesus says to him, don't you know that I can call on the Father and he will send a legion of angels to help me right now? But if I did that, how would I fulfill the scriptures? See how he ties it all back to the, Jesus. He lives the scriptures out. He's saturated with them. It's like the reason why he doesn't want Peter to pull a sword out is because of the scriptures. And how will they be fulfilled? So Jesus does, when he's up against Satan, he does have the resources of heaven available to him, but he doesn't use that. He uses the scriptures. Three times he was tempted. Three times he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Now, I also believe that each time Jesus uses the scriptures to fight against temptation, he also reveals a different aspect of his commitment to the Bible. I think what's also going on in the temptation narrative is Jesus is also showing his commitment to the scriptures. Now, first... The first temptation shows that Jesus' word is, or God's word is sufficient. By answering temptation the way that Jesus is, what he's showing is that God's word is sufficient. 
The devil literally tempted him with bread for his starving flesh. Satan, yes, Satan actually uses carbs to tempt Jesus. Like he still uses carbs. I think that's one of his oldest tricks in the book. And I, just while we're on that note, I hate it when restaurants make you ask for free bread. Like it's our, bring me the free, no, I want this. I want, we're not going to give it to you unless you say it. Say you want the carbs. And I'm like, fine, I'll say it. So Jesus is tempted by, by bread. He's, he's, he's hungry, he's starving. Literally, he's been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. But Jesus answers this, and this is what it shows, that God's word is enough. That God's word is enough. That the bread that was offered from the devil wouldn't fully satisfy him. It wouldn't satisfy him. God's word, Jesus is saying to, to the tempter, God's word's enough for me. God's word satisfies me. Jesus is saying that you can eat this book and it will satisfy your longings. It will satisfy your flesh. There's a place in Mark's gospel where a group of people called the Sadducees come up to Jesus with a hypothetical question around marriage and the resurrection. And it's a complicated kind of question. They're asking, you know, if someone has a married and they get, the widow dies and they marry a brother. That was the custom in that day. And he dies and marry the brother and he dies. And he dies. In the resurrection, whose wife, well, whose husband will she have? Because she's married, like five of them. And Jesus answers like this. He says, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? When they're debating marriage, resurrection, life, meaning of life, these, these like huge questions, Jesus is like, you know why you're in error? Because you don't know the scriptures. You haven't gone to the scriptures as sufficient for you. You haven't gone to the scriptures as enough for you. And you don't know the power of God. When Jesus says you don't know the Bible or the power of God, you're sad. That's just a bummer. And I wonder how many times in our lives when we've been in error, our hearts are less than full. Our souls are lean. It's because like the Sadducees, we do not know the scriptures. We do not know the power of God. It might be because you even haven't read the Bible or maybe because you're driven by your experience or even our intelligence. We, like the Sadducees, pick and choose which parts of the Bible we want to live under. There are so many ways that we see life distorted and eternity distorted, and meaning distorted, and sexuality distorted, and relationships distorted because we don't know the scriptures and we haven't experienced the power of God. The Bible is enough. And Jesus said, the scriptures are enough. I can live off of God's word. The second temptation shows that God's word is coherent. There will be times when what you read in the Bible seems to contradict another part of the Bible. And so Satan quotes Psalm 91, and Jesus is like, that's not what that means. But Jesus doesn't say that Psalm 91 can't be trusted. He doesn't say, oh, no, no, no. Psalm 91 can't be trusted because God won't really protect me. That's not what he's saying, because Psalm 91 is talking about God protecting us. Jesus is saying we need to hold these two scriptures together. And as we hold these two scriptures together, yes, God protects us, but I'm not supposed to jump off a, off a cliff to tempt him. Hold them in tension. And the scriptures can be held together because they are coherent. They are trustworthy. In the very next chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that he has come to fulfill the scriptures. 
He said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, which is a way of saying the Old Testament. I have not come to, to remove one iota of the Bible, and not one iota will disappear until everything is accomplished. Jesus has a very high view of the Bible. The third temptation, Jesus shows that God's word is authoritative. Jesus, when said, when Satan says, will you worship me, says, I'm not going to worship you. I'm going to worship God and serve him only. Jesus, the God-man, places himself under the authority of Scripture. He says Scripture. He says the Scriptures say don't worship anything but God and serve only God. And that's exactly what Jesus intends to do. Now, we have to unpack this idea of authority here. Now, this is the issue when it comes to Bible interpretation, authority. I'll touch on it here a bit, but it'll be the ongoing conversation for the rest of our year. Where does the Bible get its authority? How can this book tell me what to do? And here's the answer, and it's the simplest way I can put it, and you should write this down somewhere. The Bible gets its authority from God. The Bible gets its authority from God. Matthew 28, 18, we read this earlier. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It doesn't say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to the Bible. It says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. It's a a pet peeve of mine. When I go to a church's website and the church's statement of faith, the number one thing they believe in is the Bible. Like number one, we believe in the Bible. I'm like, no, you believe in God first and foremost. And the Bible gets its authority from God, not the other way around. And we, as followers of Jesus, trust in the Bible because we trust in Jesus, not the other way around. We trust in Jesus, therefore we trust the Bible, not the other way around. That's very, very important. Um, one of the books that we're going to recommend, and we don't have it in this week, hopefully next week, it's a book by Andrew Wilson, um, a, a British um, p- pastor, um, wrote a small, short, short little book, book called Unbreakable. Not the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, this, this is a different one. Um, Unbreakable. And, um, and it's great. And in it, he says this. He says, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him. I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too, even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. That is so good. We trust the scriptures because we trust in Jesus. So how should we think about the Bible? We should think that the authority of Jesus is exercised through the Bible somehow. That the authority of Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ, our Lord and our Savior and our teacher. And what he's done is he's exercised and mediates his authority in the church somehow through the Bible. And we shouldn't have a problem with that. Authority is mediated through writing all the time in our society. And has been for centuries. When you get an email from your boss, you have a choice to obey or not to obey it. Why? Because their authority is being mediated through their writing to you. Now, the hard part, and I admit this is the hard part, like I said earlier, the hard part is that most of the Bible is not as straightforward as some of the emails we get. 
Most of the Bible is narrative. Most of the Bible is story. We'll talk about this next week. And so the question is this, two questions. The first one is this, how can a story be authoritative? How can I tell you a story and go, that is an authoritative thing, do it? And you're like, well, what do, what do I do? Like, what do, you, what do you mean? How do I do the story? I read Judah and Tamar. What is that? How is that story authoritative? And here's another question. Is the narrative of the Old Testament as authoritative today after Jesus as it was for the Jewish people before Jesus? That's a very important question. That's a question that the early church wrestles through. That's the question that you will see a lot of the New Testament writings wrestling through. Because there are some things that you will read over the next year that, that we simply do not and should not do anymore. Not because they are out of date, but because of Jesus. So there's a sense in which we have to read backwards from Jesus back to the Old Testament. But I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself because that's a whole different sermon. We'll deal with a lot of this in the coming weeks. And there are really good answers to these questions, I promise. So this is where I want to close. John 5, 39. Kind of where we started. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. You study the scriptures diligently. And that's a noble thing, guys. This is what I, my prayer, this has been our, our prayer um, as, a, as a leadership team for our church. That we would study the scriptures diligently. But look at how they did it. Because you think that in them, you have eternal life. And then Jesus says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. All of this, this whole book is about Jesus. This whole thing, all of it points toward Christ, that we would have life in Jesus. All of it points towards his life, death, and resurrection, his kingdom coming into this world. All of it points forward to that. And the way I see it as your pastor, one of your pastors here, we can make two errors this year that I want to avoid. Two errors. The first error we can make is we can read this library of writings and after every month become more conceited with knowledge and puffed up with pride where we we become cold-hearted Bible nerds. God deliver us from becoming cold-hearted Bible nerds. Pharisees are what they're called in the New Testament. That's who Jesus is talking about here. This book will not bring you eternal life. You cannot earn points with God by reading this book. Life is only found in Jesus. He is the center of the scriptures. What this book is all about, the Apostle Paul says that the things that are written in the Old Testament, some of them are a shadow, but the reality is Christ. Jesus is what we're supposed to see in the scriptures. So don't refuse to come to Jesus for life throughout this year. And may this year teach us to daily practice opening our minds and our hearts to Jesus every single day. The other error that we can make, maybe you're here, is because of some apparent problem you had with the Bible or with the church and the Bible, you have stopped reading it and you even stopped engaging with the scriptures. You could be missing out on a relationship with God. Jesus thought the scriptures were enough. 
the very thing that satisfied him when his stomach was empty and his flesh was weak. Through the scriptures, he heard God speaking to him. Through the scriptures, God was mediating his authority and his life to him. This is the life that we are called to live into. And I would hate for you to miss out on a relationship with God because of some apparent problem or some sermon you heard five years ago about the Bible. See, I don't think the Bible says, look at me as much as it says, look through me to see Jesus. And this is our prayer for this year. Let's pray.